Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Episode Is it 62? 62. We did agree. 62. And we're just here discussing reading books in 2022. How's it 62? You guys messed up the numbering. It goes to 62, and then it goes 63, 64, and then it went back to 62. This is 65. You guys messed up the numbering. Oh, you're right. Yeah, we should start episode over. 65. No, Charlie Welcome loves to episode this. 65 of the exactly. Thinklings Podcast. <laughs> he loves this. That's right. It's all, we're always live. It's not stupid. It's so valuable. Uh, but what we were just discussing is we have reading goals for 2022, and Andy and I have finished a couple of books, and we're talking about that, and then... We got into this like, well, Tim is going through Harry Potter with his kids and it's like, that book is like really long. And so how do you, I think a more accurate way to track it would be pages. Unless it's an audio book. Yeah. Well, clearly I don't. So I'm, we said we're going to get all the cynical views out before we started the podcast. You said that. I'm cynical all the time. I I think I've, you are cynical. (laughs) I think I have landed to where audiobooks for me don't count amen so i could see that talk us through why you say that it's just it's a it's not it's not the same it's it should count for something like oh i like listened to the book but to to count it in the same list as reading like reading is just a whole different discipline you have to you have to be it's so much more active for example I can't lay in my bed with eyes closed and listen or, and read and read chapters of books. That's true. I can lay in my bed, eyes closed, drift off to slumberland, listen to whole books. And I, I'm still getting the content, but I'm getting it in such a different way. And so. So Saturday know. we were listening to Harry Potter. Uh, I don't know, what, what, Goblet of Fire or something. And uh, the kids <laughs> wanted to listen to it. And so I put it on. And I laid down on the couch, and you know what I did? Fell asleep. I fell asleep. And you know what I summarily did? I let the thing just keep going. I'm not going to go back and re-listen <laughs> to it. Are you kidding me? I've seen the movie. I know what happens. Yeah. So I might oh, miss a word. few details or something. I don't really give a rip, and I don't. That's I mean, well, okay. It's well, a with okay all the, story. With but... all the post-many things that we've said before, yeah. where the medium is the message, like there's, there's, there's something changing. It's still, it's still valuable. I think it's it's better than many many other alternatives, but it's still it's not the same as reading the book. So I've been listening to Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton mm-hmm. and God in the Dock by Lewis. Which Ooh. Everlasting Man and Audible is free. Yes, it is, and that's why I'm listening to it. Uh, I signed up for a year of Audible like a month or two ago because everybody does, and I wanted to try it out, and it was on sale. Um, so Everlasting Man is really good. But here's the problem that I've had with listening, particularly with God in the Dock, more than Everlasting yeah. Man, but with God mm-hmm. in the Dock, is that it's really hard when he's going through something really deep to process through and to get it. And a lot of times I know if I was reading the book, if it was a really important point, what would I do? Underline. Yeah, I'd underline. Yeah. I'd go back. I'd read through it again. Sometimes I go back several pages to get the flow because I'm I, I can start to see his argument come together. I can't do that well with an audio book, okay? So usually, what do I do instead? Rewind it. 
No, I don't. I just let it keep going. Of course. I should have known it's Tim. Of course. Of course, that's what we're doing. So as a result, that's where I'm just trying to illustrate the difference between like an audiobook and a print book. And I do think that there is some value to the audiobook. I've really found Everlasting Man fascinating, really good. It's not my book that I chose for my books in business. Maybe I should sometime, but I didn't read it. (laughs) Anyway. I think that what I've come to with audiobooks it is how you, it's like how you use it. So if you take a paper book and you skim really quick and move on so you can say you've read it for an assignment, I would put that in this in a similar, but not the same. Cause I think I'm going to, I agree with you, Charlie. I put it in a similar category to the listening to it before you fall asleep at night. But a lot of times if I'm uh, say I'm doing stuff around the house, um, I was chopping wood a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if I'm running errands without kids, I can be listening and giving it a lot of my mental space while I'm just doing menial things. So I would agree with you. I think, I think maybe you could say it like this: audiobooks have more potential to be like. It's really hard, like you said. It's hard to zone out when you're holding a book. Yeah, I'm with you. So I think kind of getting to the purpose of the book. It's like if you're reading a narrative, like a fictional narrative, with the goal, it should be the goal of fiction to like stimulate your imagination and your creativity. I don't see any drop off of an audiobook and in fact I think it probably mm-hmm. enhances that. But if you're trying to like deeply think about uh like a, an idea that's being put forth, mm-hmm. it is significantly hard to track along. And I think it's because we've all trained in languages and we're we're trained to see syntax. It's we're not trained to hear syntax. Yep. Typically, I mean we can in English, but we still have to sometimes pause and think about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're listening to something like there's the uh what is the name of that book hold on you throw in your thought while i find this book so yeah i'll just dive in i tried so adorning the dark is the one of the two books i finished already this year and adorning the dark is the audiobook i loved that book like the creative part of me i really enjoyed that book but i listened to the whole thing and i did find myself taking a lot out of it so i think what you said is true charlie depending on the nature of it but then when i was doing some classwork a couple years ago I, I downloaded a book on Audible on epistemology and I tried to listen to it as I took walks at night. No way. Uh-uh. It's, you got to take notes. I got to be able to ponder. So I'm with you on that. So I think, the book I was thinking of is Walking on Water by Madeline Engel, oh. which I maybe Dr. Boyd talked about that. I know I've talked with Dr. Boyd about it. I can't remember if it was on the podcast or not. He should be here. We have an empty chair and an empty mic stand. He should, oh. he should be here with us. But um, like that one, you're trying to like, you're trying to analyze what's being said. And I, I've i listened to the first couple of chapters while walking on a treadmill at the gym, and it's just hard to process it. Like, I don't I don't know if it's the data doesn't get stored the same way. That's a good it's way like, to say I it. It's like, I can remember, like, when I'm listening to a narrative, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that was exciting. But I can't, in the same way, like, process the data of, like, oh, that point she made was great, but then here's how I would kind of pull mm-hmm. it apart. Like, I can't process that by just audibly taking it in so i just got one uh, other thing to add you guys talked about like the skimming i personally find a lot of value to skimming but it might be because i have a repository of knowledge from reading other books of the same kind Uh all right sure so if i'm looking at like a marriage book or you know epistemology book i already know what i'm looking for so if you when you grow in your knowledge and your understanding you can go through and get more out of a skim than say like when you're a freshman in Bible college. All right. But um, personally, I think there's a lot of value to just going through and reading the headings 
of a chapter or a book. Oh, yeah. Okay, you can really get the idea of where somebody's going in the book just by reading the headings. So if only there was a book named like, How to Read a Book. Yeah. Tell you say to that do those this more where Adler say that? Yeah. Very similar. Yeah, oh, okay. very much. So like I had this one time I was working through for my dissertation, I had this French book or German. I can't remember. It happened with both languages. And I don't, I don't, I mean, I had a class on French and German, but Something I don't know European. French and German. Exactly. Well, it was, it was both of those languages. And I'd scan the book. And this is just a little hot tip, I guess. But you can scan the book and then do optical character recognition, OCR recognition on the German book or the French book or whatever with Adobe Acrobat. And then you have to select the German or French language. Then you copy it and paste it into Google Translate. That is a hot tip, Tim. Okay. Wow. So if you're ever doing some it really helped me a lot but anyway the point being is i knew enough french and german that as i was scanning the book i always saw the headings and stuff and i'm like oh i can figure out what they're talking about okay. just by seeing the headings the headings are really important so there is some value to skimming a book but guess what you can't do with an audiobook you can't, can't skim it skim. you can't do that with an audiobook so that's what i had to add yeah anyway so we were talking about reading in 2022 and andy was showing us his reading log and then Inspired. We're about how many books we've we finished so far, and just a good conversation. And uh, on the first day of classes, might we add for the so college, great. not yeah. for the seminary, Tim? But might we say, hey, you should put a plan together for what you're going to read in 2022 that isn't just your course textbooks. If you're a college student, so yeah. And if you're not, you hopefully you have more time. You should you should dive into reading. You know some what stuff. I added to my syllabus? What you Syl add? Syllabuses. Oh, oh yes, syllabuses. I have there's that recommended reading section which these remnants of other syllabuses. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what can I do with this to actually get people to read it? Like you put these books here. So I'm offering extra credit. Oh. If you read it and submit to me like a, a one or two page evaluation of it, you get a free point on an exam to Ooh. do. And it's not required. You can just do whatever. So there's one class preaching to youth, preaching to teenagers. And the recommended reading, I put the Ransom Trilogy. Oh. And I say, in the, it's like, you have to tell me what this has to do with preaching to teens. And it's like, I think that's like an, a fascinating study to think oh. that through. But like it, that one actually is because it's so long, that's worth five points, like five free points on an exam if they yeah. read it. And then submit like a one page evaluation of like, why is this have anything to do with this? I want to, I know you can't say names. Be because of FERPA, but I want to know if anyone takes you up on that one. I'm very, and th so there was another class, Principles of Bible Teaching, where I put A.G. Certeange on there. Oh, I put Habits oh, of the Mind by James so Sire good. on there. Um, it's just a lot of random, like, these are good things people should read and try to incentivize them reading it. it has asterisk almost nothing to do mm -hmm. with uh, the course that they're in. Five points on an exam. Like one test, they get five points on the test. No, like the, it's like their final, uh -huh. which is all the other stuff we cover in the class. Yeah. Then there'll be a question on the exam that says, "Did you read this book?" and submit the evaluation. And if they did, they get five extra credit points. Boom. That's pretty good. So that's a good deal. Since my exams are known for being so overly difficult, <laughs> you should ramp those up so they'll do the. Reading. I rolled my eyes. You couldn't see me roll my eyes. I saw it. Yeah. Tim, are you proud of him for that? Talking to the listener. I was kind of thinking more along the lines of isn't that my gesture <laughs> but that's okay you don't it's have true. you don't have you don't have rights on eye rolls <laughs> anyway right. so after 12 minutes of that 
Uh, we have some Thinklings business to do. Books and business. Uh, let's talk about some books. Who you have the content? Yeah, I think I'll. So start. you go first. So, listener, um, when we had our Christmas Chronicles of Christmas Part Two, mm. one of the books I recommended was Christianity Considered by John Frame, and the subtitle is A Guide for Seekers and Skeptics, or Skeptics and Seekers. So I decided on Christmas break I would try to read this. It's, I mean, if you're these two guys can see, it's a, not a long book, and so I'd given a recommendation that you should read it. I thought I'd read this one. So I did. I finished it. And I would recommend it. I would give it a six on the Thinkling's goodness scale. So let me explain how this book works. This is written for people who are not Christians and uh, maybe have questions about Christianity. And the whole point in the title, Christianity Considered, is he thinks that if you're an unbeliever, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you don't read the Bible, maybe you're not religious, he still thinks that you should consider Christianity. He says, even if you don't think it's true, it's had such an effect on the world that we live in, in the West especially, that it would be it would be just a really helpful thing for you to understand at least the basic ideas of the contours of the Christian belief system. So in it, he starts off by talking about basically the big questions. What is Christianity? What's it like? What's believing like? Why is it so hard today for people to believe? And he answers these, and he starts off in the beginning saying, I'm writing mostly to the non-believer and the non-churched. And so because of that, I'm not going to use theological jargon. So it's, an, it's a very non-technical book, but if you know theology, you're going to see what he's talking about. And he talks about, without using the terms, Plantinga, um, his, his, there's some Plantinga stuff in there, there's some classical arguments, some evidential arguments, some precept tag arguments. There's all the stuff that you would expect, but he's not treating it technically. And the point is, it's designed that you could give this to an unbeliever, and they could read it, and you guys could talk about it. So I really liked the book. One of the big ideas that he presents in it is the difference between the old mind and the new mind. Essentially, what he's trying to ask is, how come an argument might be put out for someone, and one person might be persuaded by it and another person may not when it's the same argument. He says, well, part of that is because beliefs are person, de- person variable is the term he used. I think he gets that from George Mavrados. But the point is that each person is going to have different values and whatnot. He says, so he gives an example of an argument that he hears that's very compelling to him that to someone else it may not be that way. And he says, why is that? And he says, well, it has to do with your web of, be- your web of trust your intellectual beliefs. Essentially, he's talking about presuppositionalism. And from that point on, he says, I'm going to talk about one web of commitments and trust and another web of commitments and trust. And we're going to call the first one the old mind and the other one the new mind. And essentially, he's described salvation by this point in the book. And then he walks through various topics. Um, so the written word of God, Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, Holy Spirit, reading the Bible, praying, going to church, reading the, uh, the church in the world, religion, philosophy, morality, politics, science, uh, return to Jesus. He goes through all those different topics and then he explains them in like three pages most of the time. And he says, now this is what the old mind might say, but this is what the new mind might say. Now, don't you see the problem with this? And the whole, he's very non-argumentative. He's very gentle. But the whole point is to get someone thinking from these two perspectives, I, I thought it was really good. So it, 
I would put this book alongside of William Lane Craig's book On Guard, which is a it's a positive argument for Christianity, and and it's doing it in a classical way. Frame is doing a positive argument from Christianity for Christianity, but he's doing it by getting you to think about uh, considering it and thinking about why you believe what you believe. So I really liked it. Heartily recommend it. Give it a six on the goodness scale. My book is has got a, two different titles. The one title is What Did You Expect by Paul David Tripp. And it's now been reprinted as Marriage by Paul David Tripp. Uh, it's a textbook here at Faith Baptist Bible College. And uh, it's a common book used for premarital counseling. Uh, it's a really good book. It deals with a lot of... Uh, it can foster a lot of questions. That's why I think it's helpful for like a premarital counseling kind of a setting. Um, issues that a couple might run into as they, um, as their lives uh, are combined. So talking about uh, finances, uh, talking about confession. Uh, Tripp in all of his books, I think, has uh, a real emphasis on repentance and confession uh, it's a good emphasis, and particularly within the marriage covenant, you're going to be sinning against one another, so what are you going to need to do? You're going to need to repent, you're going to have to confess, and you're going to have to forgive. So uh, I think that's a really good and strong emphasis within the book. Uh, my one beef probably with this book is, uh, as we've done this even with premarital counseling, it almost has this idea of, man, marriage kind of stinks. I mean, he's not saying that, but because it's dealing with all these problems all the time, it tends to, um, after a while at least, it, it seemed in, in our in our time with the book, uh, I took a break from it for a little bit and just said, marriage is a good thing. You know, <laughs> it's like, we don't want to get married anymore because <laughs> there's all these problems that we're going to have to go through. You know, that didn't happen, but uh, I can see how some might walk away with, from, with that perception. Uh, what did you expect redeeming the realities of marriage was the original title. Uh, the realities of marriage. This is the way that marriage really is. Uh, but there are a lot of good things about marriage too. In fact, I would recommend marriage. Uh, if you are single, then you should pursue marriage. If God has another plan for you, that's fine. And use your singleness for his glory as well. Uh, but the order of creation is marriage. And so if if there is a, a door there, then I would encourage you to pursue it. So what did you expect? Uh, Redeeming the Realities of Marriage by Paul David Tripp. It's been reprinted as Marriage. Uh, by the way, just as like uh, a tip-off, like publishers like to do this, especially once a book has kind of saturated the market. If they can add a chapter or two and print it out as a new edition, then everybody that did have it, okay, all of that old knowledge is not any good anymore because there's a new edition. Are you following me here? What is this called? Marketing? It is marketing, okay? You're going to have to buy the new book. It's also a bit of chronological snobbery, all right? The old edition still had all of this right, true information in it. And so, you know, but hey, you've got an extra chapter or two in the new book. So if you have the old one, you can come pick up the new one uh, at the Faith Bookstore. Of the making of many books, there is no end. <sighs> Don't get me started. It's That's not the right quote. understanding of that passage. <laughs> well, th those books would fall under this umbrella of all books, books that are reprinted with one extra chapter. Making it relevant to a new audience. I there think it's go. hilarious when there's like, preface to the first edition, preface to the second edition, introduction to the first edition. It's like, what are we trying to do here? 
Well, something's changed in the last 15 to 20 years. I don't have a problem with that. I just... I don't have a problem with it. I just think it's funny. Yeah, it is funny. Did you give a rating, by the way? I'd probably put this at um, maybe a seven. Mm -hmm. It's a it's Strong. a good book. Seven with a little dark cloud next to it? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's a thing. It's not a real category. There's... <laughs> seven with a dark cloud? <laughs> well, you know. Horrendous. So, so far in 2022, we have not placed any books on the Shack Stack. Ooh. <laughs> and we need to bring that back. I, I have an Osteen book in my office. I'll, Ooh, I'll try to get on it. that. I'll bring try it. to get on that. I, well, I thought about the Shack Stack the other day because I read a tweet, and the tweet was, and you'll know instantly what it's referring to, Jesus love was not, was not reckless. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, I realized I forgot something that I was going to mention earlier in the podcast. I'm going to mention it now before I get to my book. So my roommate, Jeff, is engaged to Becky, whose dad's name is Jeff. Nothing wrong with that. Well, no, <laughs> I wasn't implying that. My father-in-law is Tim. Ooh. Oh. So uh, what I found out was, so they were, at Christmas, they got uh, Jeff 1 and Jeff 2 shirts. Oh, that's which awesome. Which I thought is hilarious, by the way. That is really They funny. are listeners of the Thinklings podcast. Oh. And uh, some of you, Caleb sent us uh, a picture of some books he got that were on the Thinklings uh, scale or radar at some point. Caleb, that warmed my heart, by the way. Sir Teon, she sent oh, us a picture of Sir Warmed Tayon. my heart. Uh, but what I what I heard from Jeff, I'll, I'll correctly name him, Jeff 2, is that Jeff 1, on occasion, will belly laugh at uh, what is happening on the Thinklings podcast. Whoa. And uh, so I just want to give a shout out to Jeff 1, as I've heard from Jeff 2, like, hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. So I don't know if that was worthy of a belly laugh, but give him a shout out for- no, they're in, they're in Georgia, correct? Down in Georgia. Man, that's like, we got a, we got a little posse down there in yeah, Georgia. Yeah, we do, because you're friend. Yeah, George from Georgia. George from yeah. Georgia. We got Jeff one from Georgia. No, he's not the Philistine. He's he not thinks, the Philistine? He thinks you and Tim are the Philistines. He, so, and I'm correctly identifying him as the Philistine. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. So, anyway, so my book, uh, which has nothing to do with any of that, <laughs> I will, I'll just, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. Be diligent to try this time on books and business. Doesn't always happen. I'm going to try for 2022 to actually use books that I have finished. Ooh. Uh, which gives me oh. two options this year. Uh, last night, in fact, I finished Wing Feather 1 on the edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. Because The first time I listened to them, I didn't read them. Me too. And, uh, and that's, again, strengthening my kind of newer position of the, the, the reading of the book, that something was, I knew everything that was going to happen, but reading it was better. Mm. It was so good. I, I wrote down a couple of quotes, don't have them with me. So, uh, but I did, I, and we've already talked about that quite a bit, so I won't use it as my book. The other book I finished was The Road by Cormac McCarthy, oh. which is a apocalyptic, oh. post-apocalyptic book of a father and son and their struggle to stay alive after like a cataclysmic, um, life ending event on earth. Pretty much the whole book, they're fending off uh, other people and trying to find food. And it's. Is it good? It's on my to read list. I really want I, to read I will say, parents maybe use a little discretion if you're going to let kids in it okay. uh, because there are a couple of shocking themes there. 
Um, but yeah, it is good. And there's, mm. there's some, uh, I'm not sure how much I want to analyze the worldview or get into the story of what's happening, but there is like, there is a theme of hope that is constantly mm. translated through what's happening. We have to keep going. We're going to find, there, there is going to be something out there. There's hope to find something, you know? And they're even at times not sure what that is. Um, and I don't want to give away the end of the book, but there is this hope of like something good happening. There's also this really interesting kind of theme of like they stumble upon things. Like they're pretty much ransacking every house they find. And it's already been ransacked like multiple, multiple times by other people trying to stay alive. And there's this theme of like, well, is it okay for us to take this from these people? Well, they're they're probably dead. Hmm. Well, why is it okay for us to take it? And there's like this theme of, well, we're the good guys. We are the good guys? Yes, we're the good guys. It's like the father and the son having Mm -hmm. this discussion. And uh, at one point they find some things and the son is like, well, I feel like we should, we should thank the people. And so there's like kind of this like little prayer before they eat to these people that they found their stuff and they're stealing it, but the people are probably dead. It's a really interesting like thought on morality of like in a post-apocalyptic setting, like, was it okay for me to take these things? Well, if I don't, I'm going to die, but it's not mine. Like so many stories in the book of like the father, like taking things from these houses and places. Mm-hmm. And so there's this theme of the, like the good guys. I thought it was really interesting. I'd probably have to read back through it to really think it through, like to analyze it. Cause per the Philistines request, your friend in Georgia, <laughs> I try to now read narratives as for narrative sake. Ooh. The first time through, I don't try to analyze them as I'm reading it. So I'm just like, ooh, what's going to happen? I'm just reading it for what's going to happen. Uh, but it, it is a good book. I, I I maybe say like, there's a movie of it, by the way. I've seen the movie. Which about 100 pages in, I'm like, man, I really feel like I've seen a movie about this. Yeah. <laughs> and I had. With King Aragorn, maybe? Uh, yeah, that is him. It is. It? it is. Oh, you just don't recognize him at I first. Hadn't, I hadn't pieced it. Yeah, the father is Viggo Morgan. Yeah, Morgan. it is. Yeah, uh, yeah I, hadn't, I hadn't connected those dots yet. But yes. I mean, it was, I think if I'm, Correct. I think I saw it in theaters when it came out. Okay. Like in the, it was like in the. It was a while ago. Yeah, I think I was in high school, but shh, be quiet over there. <laughs> um, but I think I'd put it as a five, like okay. a four or five. It's a good story. I do think it has some help. Like, I think it's a it's a thinky like gets you in a frame of a mindset of thinking through things you maybe don't think about that often, like your death and like how it's going to happen. Mm. Um, so very Ecclesiastes vibe at points, but not like a negative vibe. Well, Ecclesiastes is a negative vibe. I don't think so. But the book is not a happy book. To quote, to quote one of my friends, it's not a happy book. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so The Road by Cormac McCarthy, 4.8, round up to five. I like that. 4.8, round to five. Okay. So uh, yeah. It's on my so, list now. I'm, I'm going to put it on my list. Well, Boyd recommended it to me. Now oh, you rec- really, yeah, yeah. I wonder so if he I, I has got two people treated in a class too. He might. Uh, I don't know. Which, on that note, uh, Leif Unger, mm-hmm. Peace Like a River. Uh, I ordered. I've ordered two of his other books. Ooh. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to uh, seeing if they preserve the quality. I had a listener text me this week who just finished Unger, Peace Ooh. Like a River. Wanted to talk about it, but I haven't read it yet. So. Oh, I forgot. I was going to mention. We have some people that have sent in books in business. Oh, yeah. I should do that. So here we go. Uh, Pull up the email. Aaron Moore. Back in October. Sorry, Aaron. This is uh, a little delayed. 
uh, back in October, said he had read the book is On Being a Servant of God by Warren Wiersbe. He gave it a nine on the Thinkling's Goodness Scale. And Tim, uh, we were discussing earlier, he thinks it's worth the read. Yeah, yeah. I really like Wiersbe, and that's a good book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Wiersbe's a, a pretty solid. Yeah, he's anything, not going to lead you astray. Anything yeah. that he has is usually going to be pretty pretty solid. And, and attainable. Uh, for the sake of time, I don't think I'm going to read through everything here, but he does give some, uh, he has a summary paragraph. This book is for ministers spelled with a small M. I do like that. Ooh, that's good. As well as for those who are in what we call full-time Christian living, or labors together with the Lord, the fact that your paycheck comes from IBM and not First First Church doesn't mean you aren't a minister of the Lord. So, okay, I might have to read that again to get the sense of it. But um, being a servant of God. And uh, so, Aaron, thanks for sending that in. And uh, none of us, have, Tim, you've read it. So maybe we'll have to reserve our full uh, review for when we've all partaken. But thank you for sending that in. And if you would like to, you can send us an email at thinklingspodcast at gmail.com, uh, subject line, my books and business, and uh, tell us of a book that you've read, and uh, we'll uh, feature it on the show, much like this one. So thank you, Aaron. And uh, with that, do you want to preview what you're yeah. going to talk about in this episode? Sure. There's a book I read, uh, well, I didn't read the whole thing. I read it's bits on of it. point for when it's coming out. What? It's perfectly timed. Because probably everybody over Christmas saw the new Spider-Man movie. Oh my and your book is written by Tom Holland. Tim. Oh, he's not going to be able to. I mean, I last week. didn't watch the new Spider-Man movie. I'm sorry. I just love that I was going to mm -hmm. turn to Tim and be like, can you give me a horrendous? But then I remember what Coco was talking about last week where Tim has no social awareness of culture. So he's not going to know. <laughs> horrendous. It was What's last like week. in New York City, baby? <laughs> that, was, that was such a good line. I'm going to drink my coffee. So the book by Tom Holland, not Spider-Man. Tom Holland is a historian and an atheist. And what he did is he... Well, Spider-Man Tom Holland might also be a historian <laughs> and an atheist. Can I just tell you, listen, listen. We don't know that. Thinklings... Maybe he'll come on the show and tell us about that. Thinklings listeners, listen. When I read this book, I put it up on my Instagram. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like So many students were like, you're reading a book by Spider-Man. Oh, come on. They said it just like that. Too. They did. Yep, they said it. So it's so Tom Holland just horrendous. Oh <laughs> so Tom Holland is an atheist who says, <laughs> I don't get my culture and morality from Christian heritage. I get it from Roman and Greek uh enlightened thinking. So that's what he this guy thought his whole life. And the episode today is about his book where he talks about that's he he discovered that's not true. And he did it by looking back and actually reading history. The Romans were horrendous people. They didn't care about life. They didn't care about people. They kill you. They didn't think twice about it. And the Greeks were pretty much the same. In fact, I was reading uh, in Christianity Considered by Frame just last week. He was pointing out that the reason uh, the Greeks turned to logic is because they were trying to make sense of the world without using any of their religions. That was part of a sub a sub reason they were doing stuff. And so Holland looks back and says, I don't value life and I don't value morality and I'm not trying to be logically consistent because of any Christian heritage. Christian heritage just gave us medieval mysticism. I'm this way because Romans and Greeks were good thinkers. Well, then he started writing books on Roman Greece and the more he studied, the more he realized this whole view of the world is completely absent of what I value. Where did I get my values? Mm -hmm. And so the book is him discovering that really his value system, even though he's an atheist, 
culturally comes from the Christian worldview. And he would go to bat against anyone who would say otherwise. And so he actually thinks the West has been uh, hugely benefited from Christianity, even though uh, he's not himself a Christian. And he recently, anyways, he's doing debates and he will discuss stuff with people. It's, it's interesting. So we're going to talk about that. So what you're telling me is Tom Holland, the historian atheist, not Tom Spider-Man. Holland Spider-Man, yep. forgot everything he knew about what he thought. Is that what you're telling me? Tom Holland forgot everything he knew? Oh, oh. Tom Holland. There's another Tom Holland that wrote Spider-Man. Or directed <laughs> it or something like that. Have you, You've seen Spider-Man? I have. I haven't seen the newest ones with Tom Holland. Well, I've seen all the you Avengers. You didn't see the new one that came out. No, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, I thought you had. That's why you're giving me blank stares. Anyway, uh, at this point, maybe a little too late to say spoilers. but um, <laughs> Just forget that. I th- You'll be yeah. fine. Like his content is awesome. I figured Tim awesome. wouldn't care and you already saw it, so that might be my bad. <laughs> Just okay, forget so. that. Dominion, Tom Holland. Okay, why is it that our world wants to have this nobility, uh, this noble people outside of West, the West, and Western culture? Because then they can create a noble person that's not Christian, mm-hmm. a noble person yeah. that's not associated with Christian morals. But guess what happens when you take Christian morals out of the equation? What do you really, what do you, what do you get? Arbitrary set of rules. Yeah, you get this savage people that are just murdering each other or whatever, whether it's the Romans or the Greeks or the Native Americans or the whatever, okay? they Without Christianity, this is what you get. In Coco, last week when Coco was talking about his, the story of reality with us, part of what he was pointing out was this very thing that you can, you can live, he said it, the way Schaefer said it is you, you have to live in God's reality, so even if you deny it. And I think that's, Tom mm. Holland is an example of that. He was living in God's reality trying to deny it, but he kept bumping up against evidence yeah. and facts, and he took it seriously. So that's what we talk about. I, I, I like the discussion. I thought it was a good one. Cool. Well, hey, enjoy that, and uh, we'll be here again next week for episode 66 of the podcast. Enjoy. Let's have a conversation today about Western civilization. Um, part of the reason I want to talk about this is because I do teach apologetics and so these sorts of things pop up in my news feed. So today I want to talk about partly about a book, but partly about an idea. There's a book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, and it's by a man by the name of Tom Holland. Now, if any of my students are listening, stop making the Spider-Man jokes. This is not that Tom Holland. The first time I was reading this, I posted it on Instagram that I was reading a book, and everyone started making Spider-Man jokes. It's a different Tom Holland piece. So this brother, <laughs> this Tom Holland uh, has written a number of historical works on Greco-Roman historical stuff. So he has one on Caesar uh, Julius Caesar called the Rubicon. Uh, he's got some other ones. He's um, he grew up in England and he was an Anglican, like everybody. Or he's a Christian, I should say. I think he was an Anglican. And as he grew older, he really liked dinosaurs. But at church. Uh, someone said how old the dinosaurs were. I think they were showing a flannel graph, and they showed the dinosaurs coming off the ark. And he thought, that's not possible. It's got to be much older than that. So he says even at six years old, he had the seeds of doubt uh, planted. And eventually, he loved the dinosaurs. He loved old things. And he decided he didn't believe in Christianity. So he's this guy. He's, just a, he's a historian. He's studying. And as an atheist, he had a moral code, just like everybody. So... Now, this is me as a Christian speaking and interpreting his life. 
everyone has a conscience God's built into you, and just because you deny God doesn't mean that that conscience turns off or goes away. You can deaden it, but it's very hard to live in God's world unless you live according to how God's created it. Uh, it's, Francis Schaeffer says you can, you can. It's something like you can live, you can you can say whatever you want, but you still have to at the end of the day live in reality, which is God's world that's created with a moral order. So, anyways, so Tom Holland, as he's doing his research, he would always think of himself as getting his value system from not Christianity. That's what he would he he's, he's he would say. I'm not getting my understanding of right and wrong from Christian Christian teaching. And if you'd asked him where, he would say, well, this is obviously coming from the Greeks and the Romans. So the Greeks had lots of moral theories. You think about like Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. You think of Plato, uh, his Transcendentals. You think of Socrates asking, what is justice? Yeah, Nicomachean Ethics. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> is that the right way to pronounce that, by the way? I think it is, but I could Nicomachean. be wrong. Let's keep because going. if it's Who Greek, cares? the CH is going to be a key. Who yeah. cares? I think that is right because I actually I, I right. just feel proud at this point to have cited that in a work before. Two points to you, Charlie, and Two you don't cite something. it like everything else because it's a primary source. So you uh, in Turabian you'd put a in-text citation mm. with like all the little dots and like the call signs and stuff. I feel I'm proud that I know what that is. I think you know I think if Doctor Boyd was listening, he would he would he would. I don't think he'd give you any points. Well, but he would first. Doctor Boyd is definitely listening. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, we assume that. And second, he would correct me on everything I just said, because it's probably... It is a primary source and is cited, as you said, that is very good. Make sure, theological research students, (laughs) that you look it up, the correct abbreviation in the the Society of Biblical Literature handbook. Or, if you want to do it the janky way, you... Not while I'm taking a drink of hot coffee. <laughs> so the, he's talking about doing it in such a good way, and then so do it the janky here's, way. Here's the way. Here's the way that I. So there's ways on the internet to find where sources are cited, and so like, oh, this source is cited by these people, and so there's. I think her name is uh, her. I think it's a her. Turabian. McIntyre. Oh, uh, but there's a, a book on virtue. I think that's the right book. I don't even know, but I look. I saw that this book cited Nicomachean ethics. And so I Google booked it and found the pages and matched what that person did because they're like a a, a top person in their field. I'm like, if that's how they did it, I'm at least in the ballpark. Yeah. So anyway. I think that's a great idea. But let's ask the theological research professor at the table. What do you think, Dr. I think it'd be more profitable to talk about Tom Holland's (laughs) experience in atheism. Okay. I've seen some movies that he's (sighs) in. Come on. Oh, you know, all the students are cheering for you right now, Charlie. So where in the world was I? Okay, so Tom Holland, he would say that he's getting his virtues and his moral um, p- opinions and positions. He's getting it from Greece. Now, in in the Enlightenment era, what happened is the philo- the philosophes, um, the Voltaires and the, the – I'm blanking on all of them. All the writers, the, you know, Montesquieu and uh, – Nishi. No, he well, he was a little later, but yes, yes. Um, I'm thinking more like Rousseau and um, sure, all those guys. Yeah, those guys. So they, what they did is they were, in a sense, they were trying to rip themselves away from the medieval church. They didn't want the church. They didn't want God to have anything to do with their life. So if you if you remember back to our episode where we interviewed Kevin Bowder and we talked to him about the 
um, pre-modern, modern, and post-modernism, they were at the modern divide where they were jettisoning all pre-modern thought. For them, that meant going back over the medieval age and going back to the Greek writers um, and finding out what they said. So it's interesting. You look at some of the scientific developments, and that's part of why um, Copernicus is rethinking with Galileo and all them how the solar system works because there were some earlier Greek thinkers who had different ideas. So Holland sort of makes this assumption in his own life that, hey, this is why I have the value system that I do. I value people. I give them dignity. I think there's morals and we should behave by them. So he has a really well-known article that came out called Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. And this came out a couple years back. And so I'd read the article and thought, this sounds fascinating to talk about. I might bring this up in apologetics. I might bring it up in Western Civ. And then I got his book, Dominion, and I realized that the bulk of the article from New Statesman, why I was wrong about Christianity, is actually in the, the introduction to Dominion. So if you want to read this, you can either get his book or you can find uh, the article online at newstatesman.com. And so he, this, I'm going to quote some of his own words from this article, and then we'll have a little conversation about this. He explains in the article that as he came of age and he had doubted Christianity, he began to, like later on in his 20s, start to study the Enlightenment thinkers. And so he says this, he says, by the time I came to read Edward Gibbon, uh, by the way, Edward Gibbon is famous for his um, treatment of the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, by the time I came to read Edward Gibbon and other great writers of the Enlightenment, I was more than ready to accept their interpretation of history, that the triumph of Christianity had ushered in an age of superstition and credulity, and that modernity was founded on the dusting down of long-forgotten classical values. Now, what he's referencing there, listener, is that jump that the Enlightenment philosoph thinkers were making. They were trying to jump back into the classical antiquity writers of Plato, Aristotle, and whatnot, and then take their ideas that they thought were more enlightened and more um, less tainted with religion, and they were trying to grab onto those and build, rebuild the world with just those. And so Holland thought, that's where I'm getting my values. So for a long time, he operated under that assumption as an atheist. The problem for him was that he kept studying history. So he says this, he says, the longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, that'd be like Socrates and Plato and Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus and all those guys. The longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. The values of Leonidas, or Leonidas, I'm not sure which way you pronounce that, whose people had practiced a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics. What's eugenics, boys? Good genes. Kill off the people who are sickly and deformed. and whatever. Yep. It's basically what Hitler was trying to do in the NICE. So what his people had practiced... A well, that's nice. It, it, oh, two points a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics, and they had trained their young people to kill the uppity, the uppity untermenschen, which here Holland is referring to the Nazi term, uh, meaning inferior people. So if you think of the Ubermensch, that's the overman or the, the superman. The untermensch is like the underman, the inferior man. And so I don't think 
no one in the Enlightenment would have said that. He's, he's using that as shorthand to say, even the people in classical antiquity saw there were people that didn't measure up to their standard of what was good. And so what do you do? You just exterminate them. He goes on to say, as he, as he looked at these things, he said, there was nothing that I recognized as my own. Now, he has been saying for a while now that when he looks back at the classical writers, he says, that's where I'm getting my, my moral outlook in the world. I'm not getting it from fuddy-duddy Christianity. Then he actually looks at the classical writers, and he starts to see that it looks totally foreign to the way he's living. He goes on to say, uh, nor were those of Caesar, who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. As such, the founding conviction of the Enlightenment, that it owed nothing to the faith into which most of the greatest figures had been born, increasingly came to seem, or came to, seem to me unsustainable. So to summarize that last statement, the Enlightenment thinkers said, we're rebuilding the world from a modern, well, they wouldn't say modern perspective, but they were using a modern outlook. And they were expressly saying, we're not doing anything based on Christianity. He believed it. Then when he went back to look at the classical antiquity writers, it looks nothing like the way people live today. It was a lie. It was. It was. He, he They were deceived. I mean, I don't think yeah. they thought they were lying. They thought that what they were doing was true, but that's what sin does. It deceives you. Yep. So they're self-deceived. Yep. So he goes on um, to say, it's really interesting. He, he now talks about Voltaire and he says this, he says, basically even Voltaire, who was not a friend of Christianity, he was one of the philosophes. He cannot say that he was unaffected by the spread and influence of Christianity, even though he, that's kind of what he attempts to do. So here's another quote from the article. And which is also in the book. Every sensible man, Voltaire wrote, every honorable man must hold the Christian sect in horror. Okay, that's a quote from Voltaire. Holland goes on to say, rather than acknowledge that his ethical principles might owe anything to Christianity, he preferred to derive them from a range of other sources, not just the classical literature, but Chinese philosophy and his own powers of reason. Yet Voltaire in his concern for the weak and the oppressed, was marked more enduringly by the stamp of biblical ethics than he cared to admit. His defiance of the Christian God in a paradox that was certainly not unique to him drew on the motivations that were, in part at least, recognizably Christian. Now here you have Voltaire who is writing against certain forms of power and whatnot in his day and age and saying, hey, there's people who are oppressed, and there's people who are weak, and you can't just mistreat them. What Holland is saying is that Voltaire, in his modern outlook, his non-Christian outlook, he actually can't build a case for that. And when he values the weak, he's actually drawing on his Christian heritage more than he realizes. So it's an intriguing little article. He, he concludes with this thought. He says, today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continued to bear the stamp of the two-millennia-old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in a post-Christian society still take for granted 
that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. So it's a really fascinating article. And from a Western civilization or a historical perspective, it's interesting because the Enlightenment made certain promises and claims, but it can't really fulfill those. So there's another article that came out talking about this book that was fascinating. So I'm going to quote a guy by the name of Tim Keller. Now I want to put a little caveat here. Um, I'm not saying I agree with Tim Keller. I'm not saying I like Tim Keller. I'm not saying you should read Tim Keller. Uh, Keller is all over the map. He's got some really great things. He's got some really questionable things. Here, however, I think he makes some good points. So there's an article called, um, I think it's called Proving Nietzsche Was Right. And so here what Keller does is he takes Friedrich Nietzsche's ideas and he just shows that basically all Holland is doing is taking Nietzsche and saying, look, he was correct. So Nietzsche, um, he's well known for saying this phrase, God is dead. And so when you say God is dead, it's not that God was alive and then became dead. Nietzsche's saying that in our culture, we no longer need God. But what he did that's unique is he actually took that seriously and said, if there really is no God, what, are, what should my world look like? And he came away, and basically you can't have morals, you can't have language, because language goes back to a fixed point, and so language is up for uh, grabs. At the end of the day, all you have is your preferences, your tastes. So he has this uh, story where he says, he has this like, uh, it's like this dude who comes down from a mountain with a lantern and he says, God is dead, God is dead, and we've killed him. And the people in the town kind of look at him, don't know what to make of him, and they go back to their business. And so the guy says, oh, we're not ready or something like that. So the Enlightenment philosophers are basically the people who said, we got to rid ourselves of religion so that once we rid ourselves of superstition, we will be more humane, which means there will be no slavery, no war no injustice. So we just got to get rid of superstition and then all those things will come. But Nietzsche disagreed. And Nietzsche said that all of those moral values that the Enlightenment thinkers are rejecting by rejecting God are the very moral foundations that they needed to value the poor and the helpless and the weak. And so basically what Holland is doing is he's just showing that Nietzsche was right and the Enlightenment thinkers were wrong. So what's the value of this book? I like the premise. I think as a history teacher, it was fascinating. And I think as an apologetics teacher, it's also fascinating. Um, I think it's not really like an evangelistic book per se. So you read this book, Dominion, it's not saying, hey, you need to be a Christian. You need to repent of your sins and get saved. That's not the point. He's simply saying that Christianity was a revolution that affected all of the world and to reject God is actually to reject much of what has made our world as, I don't know if you'd say, as good as it is today. He compares our world to the culture of Rome and Greece to show that those are not Christian cultures and they're horrible. You'd, you wouldn't want to live in Rome or Greece. It was a horrible place to live. But in the, in the West, there are different value systems that are great. So he thinks that the more we get away from God, the more consistent we are, the more we're going to return to like a paganism. So... um. Looking at our time, I'll just give one more thought here. So then the question is, is Tom Holland a Christian or something? I cannot tell. I've looked on an answer for an answer for this online, far and wide. I can't find anything. 
There's an interview that he did give where he discussed his research with, uh, and this is on, uh, the, the author is Esther O'Reilly. Um, so sh- she is interviewing him or talking about his research, and he says that as he looks at the Christian story, he beholds it for what it is. He says he's drawn, this is his quote, drawn to surrender to the story of Christianity. So I'm not really sure what that means, but it seems like when he looks at Christianity, he says, this is really good. That's what I want to be good. That's what I want to be true. So if I had to put him in a camp, I'd say he's probably more like a modern day Jordan, you know, Jordan Peterson. I don't, he's not a Christian, but he's, he said some things that challenge the typical leftward uh, narrative, I would say. So I would say Holland is about like that. Okay. So what do you guys think about that stuff? Give me your thoughts. Well, it sounds like some really interesting historical studies that, um, first of all, I wasn't aware, uh, I was not aware that the Enlightenment was trying to revert back to classical thought, like Roman and Greek. I knew that they were reviving the, the, the classics, but that they were seeking to transcend Christianity by reverting back to that pagan culture uh, was interesting. Yeah, I don't think they wanted to be pagan. I just, I think what they they saw was when they compared Christianity to Greek philosophy, they wanted the Greek philosophy. That'd probably be a way to say it. Yeah, and that makes sense too with the Enlightenment, with all of these scientific developments that are happening, and to want to distance yourself as a thinker from this old, outdated, archaic religion. You know, that's not, that is not enlightened. That's the opposite. That's that, you know, you, you can fairy tale stuff, you know, like that's not real. It's, it's myths. It's, you know, whatever stories, but then to try and so distance yourself from that, but then still have this morality in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that's fascinating as he, as he dives into this, he's like, ah, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we don't want that. <laughs> yep. It's, it's very similar to, um, Peter Hitchens, who's Christopher Hitchens' brother. Yeah. In his book, Rage Against God, he was a Trotskyist and a communist. And he got, he was a journalist. And he got stationed in Moscow during the Iron Curtain, the Cold War, during the height of communism. And he went to Moscow thinking, yes, I'm going to the communist Mecca. He was so excited. After 10 years, he's like, this is bankrupt. So it's like another situation like that. Like, hey, this is what I want. You go look at it. And that's well, horrible. <laughs> and what, what comes to my mind with that thought is, I think a common argument against moral relativism, which is, you know, you're a moral relativist until someone steals something from you. Yes. Like, oh, give me that. Well, you can't take that. Why not? Yep. Really good. And so kind of that same idea is like, oh, this is what I want. Ooh, no, this is not what I want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's definitely a strong, I think there's a strong uh, trend of that in, in his writing here. Like, oh, I thought that'd be great. And it's not. So the title's Dominion. What's up with Dominion? And by the way, the thing's like huge. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I see that I thing sitting on the table and I'm like, man. We, quite girthy. We got we got uh, 594 pages here and it's not, I mean, it's oh, not, it's like not 10, 10, 12 point point. It's big. It's it's thick paper. Mm-hmm. So, How does it read? Does it read slow? Does it read fast? It reads a little slow. So I've read... Um, I've dipped in and out at different chapters. This is one of those books, I got it because it's in my field in two classes, and I'm, I'm trying to burn through what I can of it. Um, 
but it's really he's talking about a, it's a it's a very well researched book and so it's going to go slow if you're a history buff you're going to find this fascinating if you're not a history buff then this podcast is probably enough of this for you so <laughs> why dominion so he calls it dominion because if you so there's a another conversation that's gone on in the last 35 45 years um the idea of the west is under attack so what is the west the west is basically European heritage that has grown up in Europe, centered around Christianity or Christendom, maybe because you're including the Roman Catholic Church and whatnot, which then came over to like Canada and the Americas. And so that's considered the West as opposed to, to like over in the East where you have like Middle East type religions and or Eastern um, Buddhism, Chinese, Asian kind of religions. Okay. So maybe kind of like Dominion is in even the colonialism. So I don't know if he, so part of what he does actually, I don't know if he, he would say it like that, but he talks about the sins of Christianity and I, I, I'm glad he does this. I have not done enough reading mm-hmm. of it to know what he's saying, That's fine. but part of the reason he definitely thought Christianity was a problem was things like the crusades. Uh, I mean, look at the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic church in the seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. Massacre there, of India. Yep. So. Lots of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And so he was a typical atheist who thought all the problems in the world went back to Christianity. Um, he's not going to excuse any of that stuff. Like the, one of the chapters I was reading at the end, he was talking about, uh, he was both saying Christianity is good. And then like, look at how these, look at all these bad things that Christianity has done. So he's not, I mean, the last chapter is, I think the second to last chapter, the last chapter is about being woke. He talks about, you know, Marxism and all that, but he also doesn't pull punches when it comes to critiquing the church. I think he's just trying to say that even with faults and all, What's been the biggest benefit, influence, enhancement, good thing to happen to our world? It's Christianity. And part of it is even like when you look at the countries where Christianity has dominated, yeah, there's sins, yeah, there are problems. But on the whole, people want to live there. And there are good things. Whereas like places where Christianity doesn't exist, it's not always the case. He doesn't spend lots of time. But also, again, I have not, I have not dipped in. Yeah. It's mostly the article. And then I read a little bit here and there in the book. So he's mostly talking about dominion as in like Christ dies, this death, and it starts this uh, revolution as he calls it. Again, he's, I don't think mm-hmm. he's coming from a place of belief when he describes it, but he's saying from a history standpoint, that's like nuts that it came that dominating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, kind of interesting, just the reading ancient authors like Xerxes. Okay, he was not a nice guy. I mean, these people, they didn't care about human life. And they just killed people that they didn't like. That was it. You're done. And nobody was going to care or do anything or fix it. Um, no lawsuits so, or? No lawsuits. Or, or, yeah. There's no, uh, you know, the Lex Talionis, the law becoming the, the rule of the land was such a revolutionary concept. Um, so whether that's Xerxes or the Caesar one, that was kind of fascinating. I didn't know that Caesar went and massacred the Gauls. I'm not surprised, but he killed like a million of them or something. Yeah. And he, I mean, the the greatest thing about, so Caesar needed an army. He has this big campaign over on that side of Europe and slaughters people, wins, and they take a bunch of slaves home. And that ended up being good for the commanders, but not for the like the rank and file soldier who went to war to hopefully make some money to go back and pay off their debts. And then they come home and they lost their job to these slaves they brought home from the battles. It was like a whoops horrible situation for him. So, huh. so kind of just interesting with Christianity and its warts, which... It's not even real Christianity, the kind that's going and massacring people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just wanted to throw that oh, out there. The crusade, yeah, he talks about the Crusades too. 
Um, but all of those, so when you hear the word Christendom, that's pretty much, uh, it's probably thinking about the movement of pop, political or cultural Christianity going out through history from like the beginning of the Roman, like the end of the Roman Empire to like present. So Christendom is not the same as like regenerate Christianity. Sure. Okay, well, let's have our final thought from God's word here. And sometimes these dovetail with what we've just talked about. In this case, it's going to actually dovetail with next week's episode where we're going to come back to this passage and, and think it through. But the passage is 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Finally then, brothers or brethren or brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God your sanctification. And I'll, I'll pause there. It's not the end of verse three. But what we're going to talk about next week is we're going to try to think through the idea of the will of God. Like what is the will of God? How do you define that in your life? Is it this esoteric idea that's kind of a, a, a feeling or like a, an emphasis of trying to decide where and what you're supposed to do with your life? Or does it mean something specific, like very specific and tangible for you on a daily level. Not this big, wide plan, but a very specific plan. And just look at the text again. In verse 1, there's an implication that there is a specific way that you live your life. Paul had given this instruction to these believers in Thessalonica. And that specific way that you live your life pleases God. Like There's something that you can do that God wants you to do. And it's, I don't think that at all is referring to these, oh, what job do I have? Or should I marry that person? Or those types of decisions where you usually hear people talking about, well, I wonder if this is God's will for my life. I think this is very personal and very specific on a daily level, that there are things you do every day that please God. And the inverse is true, that there are things you could do every day or ignore to do that God would not be pleased. And so you think about God's will. What are the things that God has asked me to do? What are the things I can pursue each day that I can do to please God? And what's, it, what's great about the Thessalonian church is that not only are they doing this, they learn this from Paul, they were being consistent to do this, and so he's exhorting them to do it more. So th this is a great example. And uh, verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Like There are specific instructions that we gave you. And I, I like that idea of like an instruction manual. Um, you know, even when kids get a Lego set, there's an instruction manual. You know, pictures, do this, put this there. And Paul, and through the epistles, he has given us those same instructions. What are they? And he's going to launch into that discussion in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is God's will. What do you need to do to please him? You need to be sanctified. And so we have to think through not only what is the will of God, but then what is sanctification. And he's actually going to merge it with a very specific moral idea that you abstain, verse 3, from sexual immorality. I don't think he's getting on a hobby horse here that that is the sum 
total of your testimony, your sanctification. But that illustration provides a very good example of how you would do something that would please the Lord or to ignore something and please yourself. And so think about that as we close here. What is God's will for your life? It is to be sanctified. And there are things that we do each day that help us please God in his desire for us to be sanctified. So as you think through those verses, start kind of churning in your mind. What do you think that means? And then tune in next week where we'll talk more about that. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week on the Thinklings Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time.